BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Fox 2 presents Hancock and Kelly. We are glad you're with us for Hancock and Kelly here on Fox 2. You know these fellas, John Hancock. Morning. Michael Kelly. Morning. And I'm Mike Colombo in for John Brown this morning. The big story this week, the Democratic debates. They span two nights, but on night two, some of the candidates ganged up on former Vice President Joe Biden. Karen Katha has the details from Detroit. We'll talk about it on the other side. Diversity on full display as candidates take the stage. The opposite of Donald Trump is an Asian man who likes masks. <laughs> Former Vice President Joe Biden standing front and center and feeling the heat. You want to be president of the United States, you need to be able to answer the tough questions. Especially from Senator Kamala Harris, with whom he clashed in the first debate. Right off the bat, Harris and Biden sparred on health care. The senators had several plans so far. You can't beat President Trump with double talk on this plan. Unfortunately, Vice President Biden, you're just simply inaccurate. For a Democrat to be running for president with a plan that does not cover everyone, I think is without excuse. Senator Cory Booker deflecting Biden's attack on his criminal justice record. You're dipping into the Kool-Aid and you don't even know the flavor. And Representative Tulsi Gabbard setting her sights on Harris. You are in a position to make a difference and an impact in these people's lives you did not. Democrats also debated issues like climate change. Too little, too late is too dangerous. And we have to have a bold plan, and mine has been called the gold standard. Racial injustice. It looks like one of us has learned the lessons of the past, and one of us hasn't. I find it fascinating. Everybody's talking about how terrible I am on these issues. Barack Obama knew exactly who I was. And immigration. Kids belong in classrooms, not cages. As those in the back of the pack tried to make memorable moments that may boost their poll numbers and keep their campaigns afloat. The first thing that I'm going to do when I'm president is I'm going to Clorox the Oval Office. All right, so if you watch the show often, you know that we were just talking last week about what a large field of candidates we have. Another double night week of debates there. Okay, so are we any closer to knowing anything more about the front runners after these two debates? Well, I think that uh, Joe Biden did himself well, um, and a couple of others did well. Kamala Harris, who was the big star of the last set of debates, not so great. Cory Booker did himself some well. Elizabeth Warren continues to be a solid, steady train going down the track. But Joe Biden, he had some issues where he messed up on some things. But I think he became uh, much stronger in being able to communicate his message. And the fact that he was taking all the criticism about Barack Obama, Barack Obama is the most popular person inside the Democratic Party. And for that matter, throughout the entire country, he's extremely, unpop he's extremely popular. So that's a good place for him to be. Go ahead and attack me on Barack Obama's record. I'll take that. Yeah, you know, I usually prefer my assorted nuts in a little can, Columbo. Uh, <laughs> that was a, quite a display the other night. Uh, Look, Joe Biden did better than he did in the first debate, but he did not instill confidence of a front runner. Uh, now, I don't think any of those people in that debate are the one that's ultimately going to take him out. Harris had a particularly bad night. I thought Tulsi Gabbard completely annihilated her on, 
on her performance as a prosecutor. Uh, but somebody is going to pop out of this thing, and it's looking to me like it's going to be Elizabeth Warren. And you're going to get a head-to-head -head between Biden and somebody, and it could be Elizabeth Warren. And I don't know that he withstands that. Uh, now, I think he's the most electable Democrat against Donald Trump, but he's got to get there, and I just don't know. What do you think about some of the forming of alliances, or at least so it appeared from the outside looking in? Maybe a little Sanders-Warren going on there. Is that a good game plan moving forward? Well, who knows? I mean, they're both swimming in the same lane, that left uh, progressive lane. There's the uh, Tulsi Gabbard, uh, Kamala Harris really trying to go for the female lane. And, as for, uh, and then you've got Joe Biden trying to stand for it. Look, what ultimately needs to happen is the rules need to start to this get rid of some of these candidates up there so we can have some substantive, substantive conversation amongst these candidates rather than 30-second sound bites. Yeah, I mean, the, the 10 candidate format is no good. And the problem Democrats are going to have, they're going to winnow the field. But right now they've got two debates of 10 people. They're going to go to one debate of 8 people or 10 people or 11 people. And, you know, that's not going to be appreciably better. You'll have few, you won't have, you know, Miss Kumbaya, what's her name on the stage, but you'll have... You know, there'll be 10 or 11 people up there, and it really doesn't cut. They've got to get this thing, as a party, they've got to get this thing down into a two or three candidate scrum sooner rather than later so their voters have some context. That's the role of a political party. But, you know, we've so weakened the political parties in this country, you know, both parties. They don't have the kind of clout and influence they once had. Shoot, 10 years ago... Well, there's a Democrat, so there's no way you'd have 20 candidates Absolutely up there debating for president. Well, it's so much easier to raise money, and then the rules the DNC came up with that allowed them to qualify. I think the person who's benefiting most from all those candidates up there is Joe Biden, because it doesn't give it a lot of time for reflection on his heirs. You have folks going out there, and again, anytime you're having to defend the record of Barack Obama as a potential Democratic nominee, that's a good place to be. And I think Joe Biden is benefiting from this chaos. Did you think it's odd that uh, Harris and some of them strategically chose to go after Obama in, in a debate? Well, I mean, look, we've, we've looked at the popularities. He's 95% approval rating inside the Democratic Party. He's still 60% approval rating across this country. They didn't do a good job specifying about the issues that they disagreed with. It really all became about Barack Obama, and the next day, Joe Biden becomes the victor out there fighting for Barack Obama. Not a good place for Cory Booker and Kamala Harris yeah. to be. And so often in these debates, you find uh, the winners are sometimes connected to those who have the opportunity to speak the most. Uh, Mr. Biden, one of those with, I believe, Ms. Harris, were able to kind of get the most talk. <clears throat> I, uh, I may or may not have been watching the Cardinal game during the debate. <laughs> <clears throat> but, you know, in between innings, you flip over to see what's going on. Every time, I honest to goodness, every time I flipped over, Yang was talking. I thought, what the heck is going on here? But apparently he didn't have that much airtime. John me. made a point that I think is worth watching and that um, Elizabeth Warren, a really solid performance. Again, on the little kid's table at right. the very beginning, this is a candidate who understands her message and is able to communicate it pretty well. It's a far more freshened version of Bernie's message from four years ago. And I think Bernie is taking uh, the staleness factor and he's going out and Elizabeth Warren's coming up through the middle. All right, let's pause our discussion there. We've got a lot more to talk about and we're going to jump around a little bit. Coming up next, we're going to talk about some comments that the president made this week regarding race that got him in hot water. We're also going to continue to look towards the 2020 midterms. 
Congresswoman Ann Wagner, possibly part of a list of some Republicans who are calling it quits. Hancock says maybe not. We will have much more on that when Hancock and Kelly returns. To hear more, listen to the podcast. Just search for Hancock and Kelly. Welcome back to Hancock and Kelly. Last week, President Trump spent an embattled amount of time denying accusations of racism. Here's just some of what the president tweeted. We begin with this one. So sad that Elijah Cummings has been able to do so little for the people of Baltimore. Statistically, Baltimore ranks last in almost every major category. Cummings has done nothing but milk Baltimore dry, but the public is getting wise to the bad job that he is doing. Democratic lawmakers, including Baltimore city leaders denouncing the president's comments, calling his words racist. We have learned that Congressman Cummings' Maryland home was burglarized just hours before Mr. Trump set off a firestorm of criticism on Twitter. And the president responded, saying, Really bad news. The Baltimore house of Elijah Cummings was robbed. Too bad. Okay, so it's unfair to play the uh, referee here on intent of tweets, particularly as it's related to the tweet about the home break-in. But... Uh, People on both sides growing tired of tweets of this vein from the president. There's this idea of strategy possibly being used here as it relates to this. Uh, what are your thoughts on these tactics? Well, they're intentional, clearly. Um, you know, when you, when you had a situation two weeks ago where he went after the, the squad, and that was called racist by the mainstream media. It was, there was even a resolution passed in the House condemning it as racist remarks, okay? Whether or not Donald Trump's a racist, going after Elijah Cummings on the heels of that other week clearly shows it's intentional. Now, the politics of it, the president must think, are good for him. I disagree. I, you know, it, the, to cobble together a majority to win an election... Donald Trump actually got a higher percentage of African-American votes in 2016 than his predecessors had in 2012 and 20, uh, 2008. And he's putting that at great jeopardy here. And the other problem is suburban white Republican women uh, who don't cotton to these kinds of remarks. So I think the politics of it don't make a lot of sense. And I think a lot of Republicans wish he would just stop. And I don't think we have to put aside whether or not the president is a racist. He is. He's shown us that since 2015 when he started running for president or when he went out after Barack Obama's birth certificate and questioned the legitimacy of the man to even be president. Um, this has just continued to go. I think it's bad politics. I think it's going to continue to fire up. It's also mixed messaging. This is a guy who said, remember, let's make America great again. Now his theme is keep America great. Well, this week he had a rally in Ohio where he spent time going after nearly every major city in this country and after urban leadership, the same way he's gone after Elijah Cummings. It's just deplorable behavior. I kind of, I, I hate to see it because it's deplorable, it's sickening. Even the United States Cathedral uh, came out against the way that the president's behaving. But I ultimately think it's going to spell his doom. The correct question is, what are the consequences of going to this going to be long term and the division we're putting in our country? And I would also add this. If the president's saying this kind of rhetoric now, what's it going to be like a year from now when we're getting close to an election? What else is he going to say? This is so ridiculous and childish. I actually thought his approach last election was right. 
looking at the African-American community saying, what has supporting these Democrats gotten you over these years? Nothing is the answer. Uh, you know, what do you have to lose by, and, and if you look at the economy in these challenged neighborhoods, it is better. Uh, unemployment is down for African-Americans. So he's got a record to point to. I wish he would stick with that. How this may trickle down to other GOP candidates remains a big question here. And now there is a wave of GOP retirements in the last few weeks as it relates to the House. Some Republicans fear that the worst is yet to come, with the GOP relegated to the minority for the first time in eight years. A mix of veteran and vulnerable members have decided to call it quits instead of sticking around to see whether the party wins back power in 2020. How does the Republican Party scratch and claw to fight for 2020? Well, it's going to be tough. And, and you see these retirements. And, and the retirements are a sign of a lot of things. But one of the things that's going on that worries me is the legislative branch of our government is losing power. And I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican. The last two presidents, Obama and Trump, have wildly used executive orders. Okay, That's taking power away from the Congress. And when you see these retirements, and Congress doesn't make policy anymore. People used to go to Washington to make policy, to sit down and solve problems. That doesn't happen anymore. And people that are there for that purpose are leaving, and that's a problem. It's a valid point, but it doesn't cover up what's ultimately going on. I mean, you said that the Republicans are retreating from this. The Republican Party is no longer the Republican Party. This is the party of Donald Trump. None of them have the backbone or spine to stand up against this racist kind of talk that's costing them opportunities in their own district. So what do they do? They're bowing out. This is going to, the strategy may be successful for the president, God, I hope not, but it is definitely deadly to his legislative uh, agenda because the Republicans are going to suffer the consequences of it. Well, and it sounds from some reporting this week that things in the Democratic House, not exactly picnics and roses right now. Uh, some controversy there, perhaps a little bit of chaos as it relates to the DCCC. Yeah, the DCCC, which I've worked for in the past, it has the primary job of going out and electing Democrats and vulnerable and in other districts uh, and trying to take out Republicans. They came up with a rule this cycle that says if you're a consultant, a TV person, a male consultant, and you work for somebody challenging an incumbent Democrat, you wouldn't be able to work on a DCCC campaign. That's a little inside baseball, but that's a little bit of what's going on here. And in the midst, look, the whole country is in disarray. We're seeing people on both Democratic Party run to the left and the Republicans run to the right. This chaos that exists inside our society right now is inside the Democratic Party, although we have the most uniting thing on the planet, and that is that we're opposing Donald Trump. All right. Finally, here for this second block, we want to talk about Democrats looking to uh, unseat Missouri Representative Ann Wagner. But apparently no longer have a candidate. Her opponent was supposed to be gun control activist Becky Morgan. Morgan currently leading the Missouri chapter of Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. There is no word on whether Wagner's former opponent, Court Van Ostrin, could run again, but word this week, Wagner is out. Well, oh, Morgan is out. Morgan, I'm yeah. sorry, yeah, I apologize. Morgan is out. Yeah, Wagner is in. <laughs> Wagner is in. Yes. Will she stay in? Yeah, she's in. She's running for re-election. And uh, I, I think the DCCC was looking for a female candidate there, and they thought they had one. And the disarray in the DCCC right now actually is a benefit to Ann Wagner's re-election. They're, they're in disarray. In so. the last election, the Democrats had a sneak attack on Ann Wagner. Nobody expected them to work as hard as they did with Court Van Ostrin and came really close. 
That's not going to happen this time. Ann Wagner is going to be out there with all the money she needs. She's going to be running harder commercials than she was running in the last election. I think she's sticking around. There will be a Democratic opponent. When redistricting comes, that seat's back in play because the Republicans have gerrymandered us so hard in the, the major urban areas. I think we can have a more fair district to be able to compete there. You just wait, pal. Let's press pause. We'll be right back on this Sunday morning. Stick with us. Square is expanding in St. Louis and bringing hundreds of jobs into the area. Before we begin our discussion on that topic, Fox 2's Patrick Clark has a look at the big move and the timeline. We'll chat about it on the other side. 900 North Tucker behind me here, the longtime home of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Well, they will be moving down the street in the not-too-distant future and Square Inc. moving into that space here, signing a long-term lease in downtown. Well, Square Inc. CEO Jack Dorsey and co-founder Jim McKelvey signing a 15-year lease to take over the St. Louis Post-Dispatch headquarters. Now, the Post-Dispatch will be moving a 10-minute walk down the street to 901 North 10th, 10th Street next month. That will take place. Square, the mobile payment and debit card payment app company, will move 1,400 jobs into the Post-Dispatch building in downtown. Now, the company currently has about 500 employees in the Cortex District in the Central West End. Those employees will eventually move to the 900 North Tucker location. Industry analysts believe this will bring high-tech jobs and growth to St. Louis. One of the big benefits that we see, too, and I think this will help attract jobs from outside of St. Louis into St. Louis, is that from a cost-of-living perspective, you're going to pay one-third to one-fourth than what they're probably paying in San Francisco in terms of real estate expenses and just general cost of living. Yeah, those uh, two founders there, Twitter co-founder Jack Dorsey and Jim McKelvey with Launch Code, teaching coding here in St. Louis and opportunities. So expecting some high-tech jobs coming to this Post-Dispatch headquarters, but not for about a year's time. In downtown St. Louis, Patrick Clark, Fox 2 News. Something going on there. <laughs> Hope he's all right. You never know. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that was the start of a parade for Mr. Dorsey and Square. Mm -hmm. This is a significant thing yeah. that's been announced here. And I know there's been some criticism. Oh, they're going to pull the 500 jobs out of the Cortex. Cortex was meant to be an incubator of jobs to be able to move. We're talking about bringing 1,500 new jobs into St. Louis. Folks that would be in places like Austin, Texas, or San Francisco. Further, Jim McKelvey has a vision that's not only about the Post-Dispatch building, he's setting up what's called NOWA, North Washington Avenue. And they're trying to make it a whole tech center. And look, this is the future of our economy. We talk about wanting to grow a city and a region. You have to have good paying jobs. The tech jobs are good paying not jobs. Not far from there is going to be the NGA. And I talked to a friend of mine uh, the other night who's a restaurateur in town who's seriously looking at expanding his operation into that area. You look at the economic development implications of what this could mean for St. Louis, it's huge. And what sounds like a solid anchor for the former Post-Dispatch building as yeah, well. Yeah, and one of the things that, that comes up, and you know, look, the progressive uh, moderate fight, if you will, I hate those titles of inside the Democratic Party's happening inside of the city of St. Louis too. People are upset about tax subsidies and stuff that are going to lure some of these jobs here. This is the reality of the world that we live in. We didn't make these rules. We have to live by them. We but need the these fact, jobs. Yeah, the fact that we're actually bringing jobs and we're using tax subsidies to attract jobs rather than move a Walmart from here to there, that's great. These are new jobs coming from another city. All right, very good. Let's wrap there and come back in a moment with our final thoughts.
Before we leave you, final thoughts. Michael, lead us off. Well, I'm hopeful that the leadership of the Democratic Party is going to get a little bit of a backbone and in these ridiculous debates of 30 people up there debating stuff. Let's get it down to the five or six candidates that really have a shot. I saw a great picture, Colombo. Can we put the, put the picture up over here? Uh, there he is, uh, Bernie Sanders. There, there he is. Uh, the first thought I had, Colombo, is he looks like the referee calling the record-breaking 72-yard field goal going through the uprights. It's good. The second thought I had was, if Hancock and Kelly is on the air in the year 2045, <laughs> that's going to be Michael Kelly right there. <laughs> all excited. He's all excited. We're going back to the future. <laughs> and on that note, we bid you farewell on this Sunday morning. Fox News Sunday with Chris Wallace is next. Have a great weekend. We'll see you back here next Sunday. Bye. <laughs>